Well, thanks again for being with us this morning. Let me invite you to pray with me, and then we're going to continue to worship as we walk through God's Word. Let's pray. Father, help. Amen. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to continue to walk through our sermon series in the book of 1 Corinthians. Once upon a time, there was God. And all that there was, was God. And there was nothing else, and it was enough. Think about it. All that there was, was God, existing eternally in three persons, and there is one God, and that was plenty, that was adequate, that was enough. And yet, somewhere in the distant recesses of eternity past, God decided I want to extend and I want to express and I want to invite and I want to include another being that is capable of experiencing and enjoying this, this perfect community of everlasting, eternal, infinite joy. I want more to be a part of this. And so God created. God said, let there be, and there was. Because the word of God is living and active. And there were humans created in God's image. But it didn't take long for those created humans to be dissatisfied. To grasp for more. To think that perhaps God was holding out that there was something else they could do for themselves. One of the most ancient errors of our species is the notion There might be something more, and we should elevate self. And so they fell. They grasped God was not enough, and sin entered into the world. And just as light and life had taken off across the cosmos, so too did death and separation. Man caused the problem, but it was a God-sized problem. Only God could solve it. And so we have this symbol on our back wall, for those of you that can see this cross. And and for most of us, the the symbol of the cross has become rather commonplace. It's become familiar. We have jewelry. We have t-shirts. It's on the back of our car. The cross is just sort of ubiquitous. It's everywhere. But I want you to imagine if instead you walked in next Sunday morning and rather than a cross, there's a mushroom cloud and it says Hiroshima. You, You would be offended you would, you'd be grotesque. You would be so angry and so appalled at my insensitivity. How dare we do this in church? That is precisely what this is. We forget. The crucifixion was so unspeakably detestable that Roman citizens were not allowed to discuss it. No Roman citizen could ever be crucified unless the Caesar or the emperor himself decreed it officially, and even that raised all kinds of eyebrows. It was despicable. Even the Hebrews knew, cursed is he that is hanged on a tree. That infinite, eternal creator God stepped out of that perfect community of joy and fellowship and fulfillment, and he became sin and shame and death on full display on that thing. Now, if you're the kind of person that believes that there is something after this life, you need the gospel because the gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. 
A human being's foundational, fundamental need, net of the fall in Genesis 3, is to have right standing before a holy God. And if you're the kind of person who does not believe that there's anything after this life, you need the gospel. Because I will tell you with fervor and with a heartfelt plea that there is life after death. And what's more, what's even better than that, there is life after life after death. And you need the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. But for many of us, we've heard that term, the gospel, so many times, either in church or Bible studies or Christian songs or whatever it might be, that the gospel's lost a little bit of its punch. And so I want to give you an image. I want you to think of perhaps the end of a climactic sporting event, the, the Super Bowl, the Major League Championship, basketball, whatever it might be. And at the very end of the championship, when the clock goes to all knots and the sound goes off and all the confetti falls, that euphoric, ecstatic experience as the champion looks and all the confetti falls, that is the gospel. Except that the confetti never stops falling because God's done it. Most of us don't live our lives as though the confetti of Christ is still coming. But that prepares us for our big idea for this morning in our sermon series on 1 Corinthians. We preach Christ crucified. The utter, the infinite, the eternal, the immortal stepped out of heaven and was shamed, hanged naked, beaten, scorned, and died on that. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 10. I will tell you, as you're sitting there contemplating where to have lunch, stop and pray for me, because this is one of those Mount Everest passages of the gospel that I am woefully inadequate to preach. There are just some passages that you just go, it's too high, it's too mighty, it's too much. So I'm going to read our entire text. We'll back it up a little bit. We'll unpack it, and we'll see if we can apply it. Beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and in verse 10. The Apostle Paul writes to these people. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you may say that you were baptized in my name. Oh, I, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. Thanks, Paul. Not only shared a moment there. I guess that was really... Oh. Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is God's word. I don't know what you think about when you think about the cross. But God loves it. It's foolishness. It's appalling. It's grotesque. An instrument of execution, of capital punishment. And it is God's best idea that he himself would step out of glory and become sin and shame and death. Now, we've got the Apostle Paul writing to this little church in Corinth. By this time, it's about four years old. Paul has concluded his time in Corinth. He's cut his hair. Well, because that's just what guys do when they're going to travel. No, he made a Nazarite vow because he was so frightened of what was going on, all the opposition in Corinth. He makes a vow. His time in Corinth is over. He cuts his hair to make it back to Jerusalem for Passover because it was such a hard journey. He started off with such a triumphal entry in his first two journeys, but by the time he finishes his second journey, he's out of gas. He's nurtured in Corinth by Priscilla and Aquila for 18 months, and then he goes back to Antioch, recuperates, recharges, and rests. Then he starts his third journey. He goes back through Galatia. He goes into Ephesus where he plops down for three years. While he's at Ephesus, he gets a report from somebody named Chloe. Now, the church in Corinth is about four years old by this point. I want you to remember, Corinth is about 250,000 people, citizens. They have another 400,000 or so slaves. It is massive. It is at least 20 times the size of Athens. There are two seaports in Corinth, on the west and on the east. There were 12 temples in Corinth, at least 12 temples that we know of, one of which was a temple to Aphrodite with a 1,000 sacred prostitutes there. Corinth has archaeology dating back to 3000 BC. It's because it's a central area for trade and traffic. All of the trade in the Roman Empire, north, south, or east, west, goes right through Corinth. It was razed to the ground because they were so feisty and resistant of the Roman Empire in 149 B.C., but in 44 B.C., Julius Caesar himself rebuilds it, and it was glorious. It was stunning. It was gleaming, made completely in the Roman city style. It was said to be more Roman than Rome. And Paul's is there for 18 months before he leaves, and now he's sitting in Ephesus, a changed man, a grizzled dude, and he gets this report. We're going to start walking back. Chapter 1, verse 10. The last thing we hear at the end of Paul's very lengthy opening and greeting, the first nine verses, the longest of all Paul's salutations and greetings, is that we would have, the church would have fellowship, koinonia, the thing in common with Christ, that we would be in and with Jesus together. That's how he ends his greeting. Then verse 10, I appeal to you, I exhort you, I beg you, the term parakaletos, I come alongside and I urge you, Paraclete is another title for the Holy Spirit to come alongside and counsel you, to urge, to really beg you. I urge you, therefore, brothers, 
He's not coming at them like a top-down apostle with authority. We're siblings. We're in this together because we are to have fellowship. Now, that's going to be an important thing to remember. Because one of the issues in this young church and in every church is people tend to elevate themselves. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, just like the people of Corinth, we tend to elevate ourselves to the expense of everybody else. But we preach Christ crucified. We don't just try harder to be better. We don't just remember to be nice when it feels right. We preach Christ crucified. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) I want to remind you, this is verse 10. This is the 10th time he's mentioned the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you think there's some fervor and some energy here and some zeal? I pray, I urge, I beseech you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, as strongly as he can word this, that all of you, the ESV says, agree. Okay, fine. That's a bit of an interpretation, not a translation. He says, I urge you, I, I come alongside and I counsel you, I implore you, I, I exhort you that you would all say the same thing. It's where we get our word for confession. We say the same thing as God about our sin, that it is faithless, that it is selfish. And so he says, I want you to all say the same thing. I want you to all be equally yoked. This is why we do church the way we do at Bethel Downtown, by the way. Yes, I know that it can be repetitive and sometimes perhaps even mechanical. I can't control that. But what I do want is for a group of people, a congregation to say the same thing. And so I confess together with you. And I hear you confess that we all fall short of the glory of God. And then we hear the assurance of the gospel together. And then we take communion. We feast on the finished work of the perfect life of Christ. And we drink the finished work of his death on the cross in my place. And then we sing all glory to God. We say the same thing, not so that we can become mindless religious robots but because Paul exhorts in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that we would say the same thing. It's good for us so that we would have fellowship and so that none of us would respond to the temptation to elevate self. We preach Christ crucified. that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions. The, the term there is schismata. There be no isms and schisms. The stuff that splinter off, the factions, the, the fractures, all of the splintering. Can churches disagree over things and split? <laughs> no. Well, I think three just happened while I was saying that. I urge no isms, no schisms among you, but that you be united. The term is katartizo. It's the same word you would use for mending a fisherman's net. When Jesus calls his disciples, they are katartizoing their nets. They're mending them because they have holes in them. They're mending. Or when a doctor fixes a broken bone, he katartizos the bone. He resets it. He refreshes it. He repositions it for usefulness. Paul's heard a report that there's isms and schisms. I urge that you reset those fractures and that you grow and that you thrive in the same mind and the same judgment, in the same attitude, phroneo, in the same thought processes and the same judgment. One precedes the other. 
You'll see this in Philippians chapter 2 as well, that you would have the same attitude. We've said it before, we'll say it again. The stuff that whirs between your ears, the stuff that, that meanders and moses between your shoulder blades matters to God. There is no victimless crime. Your thoughts and your feelings have spiritual mass. And we have the opportunity to share those things with one another and we have the same attitude so that we make the same judgments together. I want you to have the same attitude and when there's not, mend those broken things and then I want you to make the same discerning judgments together because you are the bride and the body of Christ. You are the messianic people, the covenant community. Do you see how much is at stake here? Because Paul says, I know the tendency is to elevate self, but we preach Christ crucified. Verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, and there you have it, the very first tattletale in all of Scripture. There she is. Chloe, her name means tattletale. It, she says, nanny, nanny, boo-boo. No, that's not really what she says. We don't know who Chloe is, but she's immortalized as the person who gives Paul this report. It's likely she was either a businesswoman in Ephesus that had traveled to Corinth and met with that church there and then brought back a report, or that she's a business person in Corinth and travels to Ephesus, meets Paul, and tells him about the church. We don't know. It's even possible that hers was the home in which the church in Corinth was meeting. We don't know. But whatever happens, somebody takes a report to Paul and says, Paul, you got to do something. This church is only four years old and they're already tearing each other apart. Isn't that interesting? The, the attacks against the church almost initially always come from within. You remember Acts chapter five, Ananias and Sapphira, what were they doing? Elevating themselves by lying and trying to keep some money for themselves. It's always from within, first of all, not from without. And so Paul says, I implore you in the name of the Lord Jesus, set things right, say the same things, think the same things, feel the same things, decide the same things because you have unity. Not a call for the end of diversity, never, but also not a call for uniformity. We've said it before, we'll say it again. How do you paint a portrait of an infinite God? You can't unless you have an infinite number of canvases. And this is what the church gets to do. It gets to demonstrate who our God is and what he is like. It's been reported by Chloe's people that there are quarreling among you, my brothers. You're starting to backbite and have fights. Remember the, the book of Philippians? The entire four-chapter book of Philippians, yes, it's a thank you note. Yes, it's about rejoicing, but really? It's about two women that are fighting with one another. You gotta go all the way through Philippians and fighting. Like he says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche. Shut your pie hole. That's the new Eric translation. Stop arguing about whose tater tot casserole was the driest. Get over it. It's in Scripture. They're fighting. He says, I urge you to agree in the Lord. Same idea. There are people that are quarreling, he says. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. What is Paul saying? He's like, you're letting the culture come into the church. See, in those days, pupils and disciples were identified by their master or their mentor. Oh, I am of Euripides. Oh, I am of Heraclitus. Oh, I am of Socrates. I am of Plato. I am of Aristotle. And the students would go out into the streets in the city, and they would argue with one another about what their masters had said. <laughs> it's awesome, except when the church starts doing that. So you had some guy, well, I am of Paul, because, you know, Paul started the church, and Paul baptized me because he was like the founder. It's kind of like saying... Oh, you know, I was married by Billy Graham, but baptized by Mike Hall. I mean, you are, you're up in someone. And so there's, I, I like Paul because he's the founder and he was an apostle. And he was really something. Oh, but some of them liked Apollos. 
Apollos was a Jew from Alexandria, Egypt, and he was a trained orator. He was a fantastic presenter, a great gifted communicator, and he could really hold your attention. And someone said, I don't like Paul, because Paul can get a little bit cranky and fussy, but this Apollos guy, man, he uses alliteration, and he rhymes, and sometimes he even raps. I mean, this, I like that guy. And some of them said, no, 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 I like Cephas. Well, that means Peter. We have no record that Peter ever went to Corinth. He might have. In chapter 9, verse 5, we're told that Peter perhaps goes through Corinth with his wife, as though that's an awesome vacation destination, Pete. I don't know. Apparently, he goes through there. And so some of them are saying, I like Peter. Why? Because apparently Peter was a little bit more emphasizing the Jewishness of the new church. And so there were those who were aligning themselves with different leaders of the apostolic age and then arguing with one another in the church and outside of the church. Now, the reality is we find out in chapter 4, there was actually probably other faction leaders that were also having influence. Paul doesn't want to name them and make things even worse. So he just associates the names of the apostles to make a big deal about it. But you're identifying with the wrong thing. You're going on an adventure and missing the point. And so he makes his point here in verse 13. Oh, and someone else says, I follow Christ. In other words, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. And so right there, you got it right there. The very first Jesus juke of all time. Like, oh, I don't know, but I just, just me and Jesus. He's just me and Jesus. Well, it sounds good and it sounds nice and super spiritual, except that they're also arguing and fighting with everybody else. So it's actually not working out so well. So you don't just need Jesus. Paul tells us in Ephesians, the letter to the church universal, that the church is built on the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. You don't get to just say, just Jesus. It is Jesus' people. It is Jesus' word. It is the spirit as well. So these people were trying to be super spiritual. It wasn't working. And so he says, verse 13, is Christ divided? Of course not. It's a little bit of a play on words. Are, are, have you cut Jesus up and put little pieces of him all over your church? No, of course you haven't. But that's functionally what you're doing when you argue with one another. Was Paul crucified for you? No, of course not. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No, of course not. And he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Whew, thanks be to God I didn't baptize you. Blah. Well, what's, why is he saying that? Because he knew that people would tend to errantly associate and affiliate with the wrong things. I did not baptize, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anybody else. He probably did. He's saying, I don't want to call attention to that because that's not the point. But I love that this is why we do baptism the way we do here at Bethel. We have an old adage in church. It's not original, but I like it. You catch them, you clean them. If you lead someone to the Lord in your family, in your, in your job, in your community, in your extended sphere of influence, I want you to baptize them. We'll have people ask, can I baptize my daughter? Absolutely. Can I baptize my neighbor? Absolutely. Hey, can my life group leader baptize me and then I can baptize my daughter? Absolutely. Every now and then I get to do it as well. And I love it. But I don't want anybody thinking, well, yeah, I, you know, I'm actually kind of like that varsity level because the pastor baptized it's the same level of moisturization, I promise you. It is the symbol of just like the Jews came through the Red Sea out of Egypt into the promised land, it is through death into life. It is the symbol. Let's not confuse the symbol for the substance. Verse uh, 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Well, that, he's not against baptism. He's just saying, that's not my job. 
Just like Jesus didn't baptize hardly anybody, he had his disciples do that, so too with Paul. He's going to have the church do that. Remember Acts chapter 18, verse 9. Jesus comes to Paul in a vision and says, Paul, I really want you to moisturize as many people as you can. Not what he says. Not at all. I want you to go on preaching. Do not be silent and don't be afraid. I've got people in the city. And so Paul says, my job is not to try to grab to myself a sect of people that are Pauline, no, 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 but to preach the gospel. We preach Christ crucified. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I'm not trying to sell you a bill of goods. I'm not trying to be in the style of the Greek orator. I'm not trying to do what those guys do. See, the Greek orators of those days those were the celebrities. They were famous just for being famous. They were influencers. They, they would pump a bunch of iron and get really swole, and then they would jump in a big vat of tar to have all the hair stripped off of their body, and then they would slather up with this big nasty oil, and they would stand on a, on a big stone in the center of the city well, right when the sun was just so, and they would gleam as though the gods were speaking, and they would, they would speak in this wonderful, brilliant, poetic kind of language. <laughs> Paul says, yeah, I didn't do that. I, uh, I'm Paul. Remember our descriptions of Paul we have from the third century? Paul was short. He was bow-legged. He was big-nosed. He had a unibrow. He bald-headed, and his eyes oozed. Not a whole lot of likes on Paul's Instagram page. They were like, ooh, conjunctivitis, close the ugh, ugh. That was Paul. I didn't use anything because I did not want to empty the cross of its power, we preach Christ crucified. Man's problem had to have a divine answer. And I don't want anything that I say. And yet, he's gonna go, now go on, the words that we speak, making much of the cross of Christ, that is the power that saves people's souls. So verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. According to Paul, there are two kinds of people in the world, those who are perishing and those whom God is saving through the cross. That is his avenue. That is his available metric, is the cross. And then Paul's gonna do two bookends of the Old Testament. He's gonna quote scripture because he knows he's got some Jewish people in this young four-year-old church in Corinth. He's gonna use two illustrations that are Israel to show this is what happens when the covenant community tries to selfishly, individualistically, individualistically elevate themselves rather than preach Christ crucified. He says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. I will literally bring it to zero. This is very clever on Paul's part. He goes, you want an example of what this looks like? You want to know what happens? You remember Israel and half of the group in the church of Corinth? Oh, yeah, 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 we remember Israel. 750 years before Paul, before Christ, Israel is about to be annihilated by the Assyrians. And so Isaiah speaks to them. 750 BC, Isaiah speaks to the northern tribes, God speaks to Isaiah, to them. And we see this also recorded in 2 Kings 17 and 18. You'll see these two stories overlap. And God says, Assyria is going to come and wipe you out. Repent, repent, turn, understand that you are an adulterous, idolatrous people. Turn to your God. I love you, I am for you, I want to be with you. Repent. And what did they do? 
God says, repent. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of sin and shame and death out of Egypt into a good, good land. Repent. And what do they do? No, I think we're going to side with Egypt. It really happens. Israel says, we don't trust you, God. We're going to sign a treaty with Egypt. Egypt will save us. Need I remind you, it was Egypt that had them in bondage that God had to save them from. And God said, I will bring this wisdom of yours. I will literally bring it to zero. And he does. It's recorded in Isaiah 29 and in 2 Kings 17 and 18. And so Paul's going, if you try to continue to follow worldly wisdom, it will be brought to nothing. Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? This is the philosopher of Greece who thinks he can figure it out. Has the philosopher ever effected the transformation of a single human soul? No, he's just a waste of oxygen. Where is the scribe? This is the Jewish mind who says, if we just adhere to the law of Moses, that's what we have to do. That's how we find our way back to God. Has a single soul ever been transformed by adhering to the law of Moses? No, not one ever. And he says, where is the debater of this age? That's the professional orator. Paul was saying, I'm not one of those. Where is he? Has he ever transformed a single human soul to be in right relationship with God? No, there is no other avenue. We preach Christ crucified. Has God not made the foolish the wisdom of the world? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? Some of you know the name Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was a chief of staff or one of the chief of staff for Richard Nixon in his presidency. And Colson would say later, he was one of six people in the world that had unlimited 24-7 access to the Oval Office in the White House. Anytime he wanted, Chuck Colson could go in there. Well, some of you are aware of the Watergate scandal. He was arrested, and once that happened, he actually became converted, radically saved, became a Christian. And he wrote later that while he was sitting in prison, he got a letter from another prisoner in another prison. And this prisoner said, hey, I read your story of salvation in this newspaper that I received fourth or fifth hand. It was tattered and nasty and gross by the time I got it. But I read your story of salvation. It touched my heart. I got saved. Colson wrote later, I was one of six people with 24-7 access to the Oval Office in the White House, and I never affected transformation on a single human soul. But I sat in prison guilty. And this guy heard my story and became a Christian because we preach Christ crucified. It is the power unto salvation. And all worldly wisdom, all common sense of how we find our way to God will all be brought to nothing. That's what Paul says. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God. It was God's plan that he would not be discoverable or discernible through our best minds or intellect. Through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It pleased God to take an asinine idea like the cross and the God-men dead, shamed upon it to be the instrument of life and life everlasting. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs. This is what they come to Jesus in Matthew 12 and they give us a sign. We want to see some power to confirm like an old school prophet. And Jesus says, no, you've got Jonah. You've got Jonah. The Son of Man will rise again as well. They wanted to be blown away, although signs and wonders never saved a single human soul. The Greeks seek wisdom. They want a formula. They want a philosophy. They want some sort of rhetoric, which is why I'm not a huge fan pastorally of apologetics, where Christians pull out weaponry and they weaponize logic against other people. No one's ever lost an argument and become a Christian. This just doesn't work that way. 
Now, there's a place for apologetics and defense of sound doctrine and articulating our faith. I get that. But when it's weaponized, that's what the Greeks wanted to do, to defend and affirm themselves, to make themselves feel better because of their own doubts. Paul says, no. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block for the Jews. They couldn't believe that someone would claim that Messiah could die. And all the passages in the Old Testament, like in Isaiah, that talk about the suffering servant, the Jewish mind says either those are misunderstood or they're just ignored outright. And it is folly to the Gentiles. You're telling me that you have a God that dies? That's absolutely insane. Someone else takes your place and pays for your sin? That's ludicrous. It's idiotic. I will not hear it. But, he says, verse 24, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. I love that. Oh, you want power? Oh, you want wisdom? It's Jesus! It's him. It's a person. It's not a sign. It's not a wonder. It's not a formula. It's not a philosophy. It's a person. And he smells terrific. And he's good. And he makes really good breakfast. And he's awesome. And he loves me. And I love him. And he's for me. He is the wisdom and the power of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God doesn't have weakness or foolishness, but the cross is stronger than the very best men can produce. And then verse 26. You gotta go with me on this. It's actually kind of comedic. It's a little bit funny here. Paul's sitting in Ephesus, and then he's gonna sort of, sort of jab these people, all right? He says in verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were according to worldly standards or wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Look at you guys. There's four teeth among you. you like, you want to see how God works? Look at you. Not you ain't the cream of the crop. You're not the Phi Beta Kappas. You're, you, but God loves you, and he shamed the rest by using you. Sometimes that's what our churches are. God chose three things here. This may make some of you uncomfortable if you don't like the word chose. Fine, we'll say decreed. He's chosen. Watch this, verse 27. But God, two of the favorite words in all the New Testament and all the Bible, but God chose what is foolish, and he means the people of Corinth, and he means the people of Bethel downtown in Tyler, Texas. He chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. You, there may be other people out there who are way more clever, way more creative, way more gifted but God has chosen to shame them with the likes of us. We preach Christ crucified. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. There may be people who can run farther, jump, fast, jump higher, run longer, all the things, do it better. But he's chosen people like me to show that God is the kind of God that loves people like me. And that's very good news. That's the gospel. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing that are. God's way is the only way. We preach Christ crucified. So that, here's the payoff, no human might boast in the presence of God. Because here's the deal. All of us have a tendency to, in our subconscious, or perhaps right out there in the open, believe that God's, God's kind of lucky to have me on his team. I mean, come on. Really? God, I mean, he could have, but, but I mean, it's okay, God, you're welcome. <laughs> you got me. That's what Israel was beginning to do back in the Old Testament. Oh, we are the finest, we're the fairest, and God is lucky to have us. And God responds to them and says, wait, you? No, I actually chose you because you were not a thing. 
I went and found a pagan moon worshiper with a barren wife and I created a new nation out of nothing and I made you my own. And, and, and you, church, you think you're the, no, 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 I chose you to demonstrate the power of the cross. And we preach Christ, the creator God, crucified. Because of him, verse 30, you who are in Christ Jesus, this Jesus became to us four things. Super quickly here. He became to us wisdom. What is it that you want, Greek? Wisdom? Done. The confetti falls. God's done it. And he's done it infinitely and abundantly. He became, this person became to us wisdom from God. What is wisdom? Proper perspective, seeing the world through God's eyes, thinking God's thoughts after him, feeling God's feelings after him, knowing what he knows so that we will want what he wants. Oh, it's Jesus. And we draw nearer and nearer to him and we know and feel and want what God knows and feels and wants. He became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness, that is our justification. That is our conversion. We were found guilty, guilty as sin, and yet he declared us righteous. That's our justification that happened in the past. And our sanctification that's in the present. That's our progression as we are ever increasingly being conformed to the image of the Son of God. So we are in Christ and redemption. Now, I know there's a sense in which that means rescued from the slave market of sin and death, but it also has in view our glorification, ultimately transferred to the kingdom of light and our Lord Savior, Jesus Christ. So this Jesus, this person, he is our wisdom. He is our righteousness, our sanctification. He is our redemption. He is our all in all. So that, verse 31, when the church begins to lose its way and self-elevate, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast only in the Lord. And there's his second Old Testament scripture reference. First, he'd mentioned Isaiah 29 in the northern kingdom of Israel. Now he closes with a reference to the southern kingdom of Judah. They were about to be overrun by the nation of Babylon. And they said, back to God, always a good idea. No, 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 we're good. We've got a strong economy and we're highly educated. To which Jeremiah said, oh, no, 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 let me remind you. It is God who has raised up the Babylonians because of your apathy, your anger, your arrogance, and your adulterous idolatry. It is God that is doing this. Nobody gets to boast in their salvation because it's God's doing. Praise God. We preach Christ crucified. So let me very quickly give three principles in conclusion that will help us hopefully make this portable. Number one goes like this. Truth is revealed, not discovered. Now, I know that sounds super nerdy and you couldn't possibly care less. Let me explain. This matters. Sociologically and culturally, this is huge and it's right out of this text. Truth is revealed. It is not discovered. It's important because we live in the 21st century in a culture that demands our allegiance to an idea that truth is discoverable if we just try hard enough. We can figure out all the answers. I have a buddy that says, we now live in an age of no unanswered questions. Ask Rabbi Google. He knows everything. Not true. There is still so much that we do not know that we cannot know. The truth that matters is revealed to us. We don't discover it. This was the basis of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. We can do this together. Yes, we can. No. The subtle undercurrent of that line of thinking is that we collectively can be God. We have no need of a sovereign being to love and lead and guide and guard us. It's very dangerous and it can even affect the community of faith. No, 
we cannot figure out how to save ourselves. Neither could the people in Corinth, neither can we here and now. The only inerrant, inspired, and infallible source of truth is the Word of God, and He's given us His Son, His Spirit, and His people to guide us as we grow into His truth. You and I don't have to understand everything, and in fact, we probably never will, but we must believe that God loves us. The Christian life is learning to live like we're actually loved. And we preach Christ crucified. He loves us so much that he was willing to step out of glory onto that. Number two, the centrality of our salvation is substitution. Now, I say this a lot down here, as often as possible, because I hope you hear it time and time again. We boil down the kernel of our confession is in a single word, substitution. It is the uniquely, distinctly Christian notion. Every other form of religion, every other organizing narrative bases on what you must do to accomplish, attain, and achieve what you want or need. But not so Christianity. In my place, the innocent dies for the guilty. On my behalf, the innocent dies for the guilty. In a word, substitution. He takes my sin, he gives me his righteousness his wisdom, his sanctification, the redemption. The confetti falls over and over and over again. He died for us. This is the gospel. And so we preach Christ crucified. Thirdly, our liturgy is love. Don't you see the report Paul got back when he's sitting in Ephesus and begins to hear that this church is fighting with one another and they're chirping about this issue and they're chirping about that issue and they're beginning to tear one another apart and it rips Paul's heart out. Instead, he effectively says, let our liturgy be love. One of the things we like to say at Bethel is our vision, our liturgy is what we're doing no matter what we're doing. It's always what we're doing. And pastorally, my heart, my prayer for these, our people, is that we would be known, yes, for loving the Lord and being loved by the Lord, but loving one another. But our tendency as a fallen species is to self-justify and to associate with a clique of people that will agree with me about whatever issue it might be, that will affirm me, not correct me or rebuke me, and make me feel better about myself. And we don't hear it nearly as often as we used to, but still every now and then, hey, I've been listening to this podcast by this celebrity pastor, or I've been listening to these uh, sermons from that celebrity pastor, or I've been going to this camp, and I've been hearing this guy speak, or this podcast, or whatever it might be. Why, why, I want to be like them. Why can't we be more like them? And I say, well, it's just simply because I'm grossly unqualified <laughs> to do anything more than what I'm doing. So if you want us to try to be like that other church, I don't know what to tell you. But not only that, it's because we're not merely trying to ratchet up a platform communication ministry. We're trying to be the people of God between the Sundays that eagerly love one another because love covers a multitude of sin. Even when there's no microphones and communion chips, that we actually love one another. We have a well-reasoned concern for one another. The gospel comes along and it softly whispers, hey, Christ died for you. How exactly is it necessary to place yourself above anybody else? Love somebody. Say something nice to somebody else who's not expecting it. Just walk across the room and be kind. Do something generous. Give yourself away. I always like to say this. Gorilla bless somebody. They'll never see it coming, especially from you. Just gorilla bless somebody. Because our liturgy, the thing that binds us, that we replicate and reproduce, is loving one another. 
That's to be our repeated expression of worship, thinking of, praying for, and serving one another as a reminder that we have been loved, we are loved, and we are therefore free to love. We preach Christ crucified. And now, perhaps most importantly, we preach Christ crucified to ourselves. We don't just adhere to an idea of the gospel generally and abstractly. We preach Christ crucified to ourselves. We covered a lot of ground on the end of this first chapter in 1 Corinthians, but at the end of all this is the message of the gospel. I invite us to look to Jesus. This Jesus who Philippians 2 tells us, being in very nature, in essence, in substance, God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but experienced death, humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. How do we preach Christ crucified to ourselves day by day, moment by moment? In a word, surrender. You wave the white flag. As you think about the gospel and the confetti of his victory falls and you are tempted in that to, to speak in that way to your spouse or to your kids or your coworkers or your neighbors or to people in traffic, you instead wave that white flag. I preach Christ crucified. Jesus paid it all. I'm not saying the Bible wants us to be namby-pamby wimps. Far from it. We are to be zealous in our proclamation of the gospel not to elevate ourselves. The one that bought us is worth it. So we wave the white flag day by day, moment by moment, conversation by conversation, thought by thought. The gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. And the confetti falls. My response is to surrender to that reality. We preach Christ crucified. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the morning. Thanks for the time to be gathered together, indwelled by your Spirit, walking through your Word, surrounded by your people. And I do pray, God, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, who is still trying to hash out right relationship, right standing before you, a holy God, I pray you will turn their heart, soul, mind to the cross and the finished work of your Son, Jesus, who, though hanged on a tree and cursed, you vindicated him by rising him from the dead. And he's alive forevermore and he will come again. So in that meantime, Father, would you remind and encourage all of us that we preach him crucified. We're not the smartest, we're not the strongest, we're not the most clever, not the most gifted, not the most noble, wealthy or wise, but you love us. And so would you use us, Father? Would you remind us to surrender day by day, moment by moment, Father, thank you for loving us first. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus, amen.